Let me uh, get all this ready. If you would turn in your bulletins to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm very thankful for Luke preaching in my stead a couple weeks ago from 2 Corinthians 5 and then Al Phillips preaching last week in 2 Corinthians 6 as we continue to see what it looks like to live as a church that is an imperfect church. And uh, I don't want to rehash too much, but I do want to put in the context of what we look at in 2 Corinthians. You have to remember that there were super apostles that were in the uh, area of Corinth who were disdaining Paul and what he represented, namely a, a life and a call to lay down your life. The Apostle Paul, we see, was beaten, was scourged, he was uh, left for dead, he was abandoned by his friends. And we see in Paul the very life of what a Christian ought to look like. A lot of times we love the really shiny objects in the world, but we see here in 2 Corinthians that the way of the cross is really the harder way. And that's the way of Jesus. So Jesus said, if, if, if this is what your master lives like, you shouldn't expect to live any different. And so the Christian life is one where we lay down our lives for other people. And I hope that that's the undercurrent of what we see in 2 Corinthians 7 as we continue to work through this book. And uh, let me just go ahead and read this. And then we're going to jump right into a few, a few things that I think the Lord would have us pay attention to. <clears throat> Paul writes, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, 
we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I wasn't put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. It's really popular in Christian circles today to talk about grace. Grace is a really good thing to talk about. And in fact, our world needs a lot more of that grace. Because our world is constantly hemming us in and trying to get us to prove ourselves. And the Christian gospel comes to us and says there's more grace than you could ever imagine. And so we don't suffer from a lack of grace in our, in our culture, in our, particularly in our church culture. But, you knew there was a but coming, but that grace oftentimes is short-sighted. Oftentimes, grace is just talked about as though God loves you and God accepts you, that you've, been, you've entered into the court scene and God has said you're not guilty. And in fact, not only are you not guilty, but I've given you the righteousness of Jesus. That's a glorious truth. And yet a lot of times in the talk about grace, it's forgotten that you have to walk outside of the courtroom. Not only have we been born again by the grace of God, we have been born again as children of God so that we have to learn how to walk and learn how to talk. That the grace that saved us is magnificent. That grace is also sufficient and efficient to make us more like Jesus. Eventually we have to walk out of the courtroom. Eventually we have to learn what it means to walk and talk and act like Jesus. That's the Christian life. So we can talk about grace, but we have to realize that grace too often times in our culture can be cut short. It can be said, you're, you're saved by grace. That's true. But we are to also live by grace. And as we've, as we've looked throughout 2 Corinthians and then even in our time in 1 John, the Christian life is not just merely an esoteric or some kind of metaphysical reality that is divorced from the earth. The Christian faith is a blood-bought faith. It is a flesh and blood type faith, that Jesus was flesh and blood to win us to God, that that matters. It wasn't just some kind of really good story that, that sounds nice, that, hey, you're forgiven of your sin. No, you're forgiven of your sin so that then you can know with your own hands, with your own feet and eyes and ears and mouth, how God has redeemed not just your soul, but your entire body. That our bodies were meant to be lived in glory and honor of God, of the one who saved us. And so that's really what we see throughout 2 Corinthians is that it can be really easy to be enamored by the shiny things, the shiny objects in the world. And it's really easy to forget that our faith is meant to matter. And I mean that in both ways, that it's important and that it's matter. It's physical material that what we do and what we say is important. And, and, and God cares just as much about that as he does about saving you. He, he cares about showing you how to live and talk and act like Jesus. And so that's what we see in 2 Corinthians. And in fact, in this particular passage in chapter 7, we begin to see that even grief, even grief is grace. 
at the grief that you experience, the pain, the, the difficulties that you experience, if you wait around long enough, and if you have eyes to see it, even that is grace to you. A lot of times we can say, God, why is this happening to me? And the Lord all the time is whispering, because it's grace. Because I love you. Because I care more about your holiness than I care about your comfort. And so God is at work to purify us, to bring out the junk in our lives so that we can experience a full life. Not just a happy, slappy Christian life, but a life that in the difficulties of life, we can say, though he slay me, I will yet hope in him. Though God has caused me to go through this valley of darkness, I will hope in him. He is the shepherd who is beside me walking in that valley. That's the beauty of the Christian life, that we don't just try to put a band-aid over our difficulties and over our pain, but we realize that that pain and that difficulty is the very path that our Savior walked. And And it should be no less for us either. That difficulty and pain is the way in which we're conformed into the image of Jesus. And we see that in 2 Corinthians. And so I think this particular chapter has very formative things for us as a church, as Redeemer, that I think God would have us uh, pay attention to. And so the first thing, and these are three things that I think not just for Redeemer, but as the church at large should be experiencing as it seeks to look a lot like Jesus. So the first one that that I wanted to point out is that our obedience is always a result of God's work in our lives. Our obedience is always a result of God's work in our lives. And it will always be that way. We don't obey in order to curry favor with God. We don't say, God, I'm going to do this so that you like me. See, our our relationship with God is not like our relationship with human beings. You You don't have to try to impress God. Because God's standard is perfection. Right? And so because we don't have to obey in order to earn his favor, we have great freedom in that. But there's still an obedience. There's still a life that God wants you to live, as, as I mentioned just a moment ago. And so we see this in our first, first verse. Paul writes, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So my question is, what promises is Paul talking about? What promises is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the promises that are in the three verses right before this verse, in in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And so this is where he says, I'll I'll read it for you, because unless you have your Bibles, you can follow along. But in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 16, he says, and this is quoting from the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's where you start. I, God says, I will make my dwelling with my people. Verse 17. Therefore, because God makes his dwelling with his people, therefore go out from their midst. Talking about those that are sinful. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So the conformity that God is talking about according to his word stems from first that God is with his people. 
because God is with you, therefore go out and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. See, repentance is not just cognitive. Repentance is not just saying, I agree, I'm a sinner, save me. Repentance is saying, I have walked in the way of the wicked. I have done what I ought not to have done with my hands and with my mind and with my eyes and with my feet. I have done these things. Therefore, Lord, forgive me so that I can walk in this direction, physically, actually. Repentance is not just about your mind. It's about what you do with your, your body. You see, these, these verses um, in, the, in the passage right before ours that I just read, um, this is a mashup of several Old Testament concepts and quotations. And I'd encourage you to write these down so, you can, so that you can read them in, in their own context. But it's really a mashup of these things. Um, and, and not like this is not one huge passage that's being quoted here. So the passages that, are, that we see here are Leviticus 26, 3 through 13. Leviticus 26, 3 through 13. Exodus 6, 2 through 9. Isaiah 52, 7 through 15, Exodus 4, 21 through 23, and Jeremiah 31. So I'd encourage you maybe in your community groups to, to read through one, to take one of those passages and read through them together and kind of say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm following the train of thought here. Because these promises that Paul is talking about, that he's pulling from all of these different places, why does he do that? Why does he pull from... Leviticus, Exodus, Isaiah, Jeremiah. What he's doing is he's showing how we ought to think about the New Covenant, how we ought to think about the New Testament. That all of these promises in the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through all the prophets are being fulfilled in Jesus, in the New Covenant, in His blood. And so, what is the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant is God showing His people what his righteousness looks like. It's like a mirror that we are to look in and we're saying, wow, that's God's standard. I don't meet that standard. And it should not only humble you to see what God's standard is, namely perfection, but it is also meant to propel you to someone that can save you. Someone who has lived the only righteous life, namely King Jesus. And so therefore, our righteousness always stems from what Jesus has done. Are you tracking are you tracking with what I'm saying? That, that God has said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And when that new covenant comes, then you'll be my people. But it's because of what I've done for you. And so Paul's saying, since we have the, you and I have these promises that were promised to Israel, we have these promises and we are to live rightly. So what are we supposed to do? Since we have these promises, we're called to cleanse ourselves. We're called to cleanse ourselves. But we've always got to get the order right, don't we? I think I've shared before with you, I heard an evangelist, not Evangelist James in Kenya, but I've heard an evangelist one time say that God can't clean his fish unless he gets them in the boat. And so what the Christian life is about, God bringing his people into the boat, saving them, not according to their righteous deeds, breathing life into them and cleaning them, cleaning them, cleansing them. But we've got to get that order right because your heart and my heart are so quick to think that what we do is why God accepts us. The great story of the Christian gospel is that there is only and always ever will only be one Savior. 
who saves his people. But we are called to cleanse ourselves in light of that Savior. That's where it comes from. So what he's done for us, therefore what we do. We're called to cleanse ourselves. Because as we walk in the world, we're going to get sullied. We're going to get dirtied by the promises that the world gives us. The world makes a lot of vain promises that if you do this, then you'll be happy. And you can fill in the blank with whatever that is. Whatever that promise is that you're believing, that if I make just a little bit more money or if I get that promotion or if my husband or my wife did this, then I'd be happy. And the fact of the matter is, is because of our, our sinful hearts, we'll never be happy until we find our rest in a Savior. And so our, our working, our striving, our cleansing always has to come from a work outside of us, from a cleansing outside of us. But one of the things I find really encouraging here is that Paul himself says, let us cleanse ourselves. The Apostle Paul, the one who wrote a majority of the New Testament, he said, let us cleanse ourselves. That to me is a, is a great encouragement. Paul says, I need to be cleansed too, my friends. He's not wagging his finger saying, hey, listen, you, you need to clean yourselves up. He's saying, no, no, let, let us do this together. Let us do this together. And we're going to get into that here in, in, in the second point I want to share with you. But we're to do this in the fear of God. That's the last piece I wanted to show you in this first point, is that we're to cleanse ourselves in the fear of God. A lot of times we consider our sin just merely a personality flaw or a character trait. I'm just an impatient person. I've said that a lot of times. Or, man, I just like to be in control. Or, uh, hey, I just like, I, I, I want this and this and this to happen. And a lot of times we take our personality and we, we say, well, that's just who I am. But we see here that your sin is not simply a personality imperfection that you are to work through. We see that you are to cleanse yourself in the fear of God. It's something that you and I need to repent of. We don't need to be content with saying, I'm just an impatient person. No, I need to repent to my wife and my children. You need to repent to your family and those who are your co-workers and your friends to say, yeah, I need to repent of this sin, not just kind of work through it. I need to say, Lord, I am sorry that I want to be in control of everyone else. And I want everyone else to kowtow to my desires. Our personality conflicts, our imperfections are sinful. Because they are not lived in light of our Creator. We're, we're substituting ourselves for the role of only the place that God should be. And so we've got to repent that our sin is an affront against our maker. It's not just a personality conflict. And so one, one of the things that I tried to do in college, this, this is not what we're, we're called to do. So one of the things I tried to do when I first heard about this, that, Matt, you need to repent of your sin. I remember saying, Lord, I want to be holy as you are holy. Please clean me up. And so I just started writing down all of my sins every day. Started writing them down. Oh, I yelled at my roommate, or I got frustrated with my teacher, or and I just started writing them out. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to just kind of start trying to pinpoint all this stuff. This in the fear of God says you should repent of that, but what the solution is of repenting is not just to kind of start listing out all your sins and then try to clean yourself up. It says in the fear of God, so that it pushes your eyes away from who you, all of your issues 
And it pushes your eyes towards God and saying, God is the one who's cleansed me. He's given me these promises in spite of who I am. Therefore, I have hope. Therefore, I can get this sin conquered. Therefore, I will be clean because he is the one who's going to come from outside of me. And he's going to clean me up because, brother and sister, you cannot clean yourself up. The most you can do is you can identify what your issues are, what your sin is. And then you have to say, Lord, you have to clean me. You have to stop you have to help me stop justifying my sin. You have to help me stop trying to look over and make excuses for my sin. Something outside of you has to work on you. That's why we need the spirit of God. That's why we need the spirit of God. The second thing I think that um, that we see in our passage is that Because of these promises, we are able to pursue others. We are able to draw near to other people. So when people hurt you or people slight you, how do you respond? When someone says something that you don't like to you, what's your reaction? Your reaction is really what's in the deep recesses of your heart, not the polished response. But when someone says something unkind to you or somebody does something to you that you don't like, how do you respond? Listen to these words that Paul gives us because Paul had his share of issues with the Corinthians. Right? We've already, we've already mentioned that several, several weeks in a row. But he says, verse 4, in all of our affliction, verse 5, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Open your hearts to us. The very people that should have been loving Paul were the very ones who were hurting him. He says, open your hearts. We, we have opened our hearts to you. That's, that's the example we see in Paul. So instead of draw, pulling away from somebody who hurts us, instead of saying, well, if they're not going to respond to my text message and my phone calls, then I'm just not going to talk to them. You know, Paul says, in that very spot, because the affliction that he's talking about is not just somewhere... Other than Corinth. Paul is talking about the affliction I experienced was with you. And he says, my heart is open towards you. Open your hearts to us. And so Paul shows us in his example, when you get hurt, that should be a trigger to say, I need to draw near to that person. Is that not what Jesus did to us? And is that not what Jesus does to us every day? Is that we afflict him, we slight him, And he doesn't say, okay, Matt, I've given you five chances today. He says, I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to draw near to the one who repents and believes in me. I'm going to keep drawing near to you. And so, brothers and sisters, in our relationships with one another, that's, that's what God's calling us to do as well. So when someone slights you, they may not be doing it on purpose. We, give, we, we ought to be giving each other the benefit of the doubt because that's what a, a, a culture of grace does. A culture of grace comes to the person and says, Hey, I, I'm sure you didn't mean to say this, but I, I just need to say, when you said that to me, it kind of hurt. Oh, bro, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. But it's giving people the benefit of the doubt, but it still is pursuing people. So, so many times, how many times have you had this? I, I've had this happen a number of times where somebody says something to me, and then I think that they meant it one way, and they, didn't, and, and they had no clue that's how I took it. And then so I got, got the courage up to say, hey, um, you probably didn't mean this this way, but I, I wanted to ask you, when you said that I was a jerk, like, did you mean it? 
you know? No, yeah, I meant it, but I wanted to help you. So, so that, 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 that's what we are called to do, and that's what we see in Paul here. Right? He's saying, we've already opened our hearts to you. We're vulnerable. We have nothing to hide. We have no kind of polish that we need to put on our person. We're just coming to you, and we are saying, please open your hearts to us. Help us, because we love you. We're drawing near to you. And that's really what a, a church ought to be looking like, is, is people drawing near to, to each other. Um, let me ask this. When someone comes to you and tries to help you by pointing out a discrepancy between what you say and what you do, what's your reaction like? What's your reaction like? Do you avoid that person? And I think that God would say to us in this passage that we can admit that we need help. We can admit that, man, I don't have my stuff together, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be receptive receptive to people who bring out inconsistencies in my life because that's the point of the Christian life is to bring consistency with what I believe in my heart and what I say with my mouth or what I do with my actions. That's that's the point of conforming to the image of Jesus. Of sanctification is to say you believe this, you believe that forgiveness is really the merit or what what you're called to be as a Christian, but I don't see a lot of forgiveness in your heart. I don't see a lot of patience in your life. And so then you and I, if we can start there with we need a Savior, then that will provide an attitude and a culture of grace for our church. I have to believe that. And see, our holiness as believers is worth pointing out discrepancies. It's worth the uncomfortability. And so we ought to have an attitude of constant growth. I want to also point out, did you notice throughout our passage, there's this intertwining of the Christian life. Paul says, I felt this, I did this, we did this, us, we. There's, there's all this movement of I, us, and we. That's instructive for us as well, that our spiritual lives are not meant to be figured out on our own. Our Christian lives, our spiritual lives are always meant to be lived with the help of other people. When you eat a bagel and get cream cheese on your nose, you need somebody to point that cream cheese out. I mean, I don't know if you've ever walked around with something on your face a lot, but a lot of times if you don't have a mirror and people don't provide the mirror for you, then you're going to look like an idiot all day. And so the people that God brings into your life are a means of grace. And so Paul understood that. Did you see how many times he talks about Titus? It shouldn't be lost on us that he did ministry with other people. He was loved by other people, he was hated by other people, but he also depended upon other people. And so your spiritual life, whether we like it or not, our spiritual lives are dependent upon other people. Are dependent on other people loving us enough to say, hey, you said this, but you did this. So take that for what it is. But then thirdly, I think that these promises also help us to be patient with each other. Also help us to be patient with each other. So this comes to the person that says, hey, I, I pointed this out, but they haven't changed at all. Have you ever had that in your, your marital relationship or in any kind of coworker relationship? Hey, I said that they didn't need to do this, but they haven't changed yet. The gospel and these promises that Paul is talking about help us to be patient. Not only to be patient, but confident. Help us to be confident because it's not a matter of how much you bring it up. 
It's a matter of what God is doing in this person's life. Because I promise you, you could bring up whatever issue it is in somebody's life, and you could bring it up every single day, and it won't change. The only way it's going to change is if the Spirit of God changes that person's heart. And so you can bring it up, and then you're just you can sit back and say, Lord, please do a work. Do a work in this person's life that I love, and be patient with them. So I think that's what we see here, that this is how we are to approach one another. See, Paul says in another place, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The one who started the work in your friend's life and in our lives as individuals, that same Spirit of God who who gave us his Spirit, that that same Spirit who lives in us, he's going to be faithful to complete that work. And it may not be uh, in our timing. Remember what I said from 2 Corinthians uh, 3, the end of chapter 3, it says, We are being conformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. And so as we interact with one another as a church, our conformity in the image of Jesus will take place on a very slow scale. And so we ought to be patient with one another. But let me, let me give you a little bit of encouragement this morning. That this godly grief is based upon the fact that the Spirit of God lives in you. So if you are experiencing some kind of grief over sin in your life, instead of just staying in that grief, this, this text inform us, informs us that we ought to be celebrating that fact. We ought to be celebrating the fact that you have grief in your life. That you are broken over some kind of sin. That you're, that you're battling sin is a sign of God's grace. And a lot of times we get lost in that, that, man, I just can't believe I'm struggling with this thing again. And our text says, that's a gift. That grief that you feel, that, that frustration that you feel is a gift from God. If you didn't feel that, you, you, should have been, you should be worried. But the fact that you are grieved over your sin ought to give you great delight, ought to give you great hope. Because that means the Spirit of God dwells in you to change you. And this is one of the ways that he does it. So with all that being said, I do want to say this, that this doesn't mean that as a church we are to be the sin police. This doesn't mean that we are to go about trying to pick out everybody's speck in their eye. It means that we shouldn't be afraid to do that. In fact, that, that shows the health of a church is the kind of conversations that you have. If you've ever been in a church and the tenor of all the conversations is about the football game and never about somebody's spiritual life, there's a problem. As a church, I pray that Redeemer, we would be a kind of church that talks about Jesus a lot. That talks about the Spirit of God a lot. That doesn't just default to this kind of thing out here. But that we have part of our vocabularies, hey, how's the Lord working in your life? That, that, that should be something regularly in our conversations as a church. We shouldn't be scared of that. I mean, for crying out loud, we, we, we've, we've repented of our sin. We've already, all, all of us have said, who are members of this church, we've already said, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. So what are you afraid of? When somebody says, yeah, you are a sinner, you're just calling a spade a spade. That's all we, and so I pray that God would, by His Spirit, help us as a church To not be the sin police, say, man, I can't wait to point out everybody's sin. No, you better be ready because you're also going to get your own sin pointed out too. Because we are sinners. Isn't that, that's something we should celebrate. 
that we need a Savior. And because we need a Savior, we come in humility. We don't come in saying, man, I knew you shouldn't have done that. No, we say, hey, I love you so much that this may be a discrepancy in your life, and I could be wrong too. But that's the kind of church that I want to see happen. I don't know if, if that, and I, and I have to believe that that's the kind of church that you all want as well, is that we want a church that is earnest about the things of God, that says, because I've been saved by grace, I can admit my failures, and I can walk, and I can learn what it means to cleanse myself, and I need people outside of me to help me cleanse myself. We need a Savior, and we need each other. And so I do want to leave you with that fact that there is great comfort. There's great comfort in the fact that you're battling sin. There's great comfort when people point out sin in your life. There ought to be. Did you see the progression? Now let me just point it out real quick. Verse 6, God comforts the downcast. God comforts the downcast. Verse 9, you felt a godly grief. Verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. You see that? God comforts, grief happens, we're comforted. You see that progression of what's happening is this word comfort is the same word we saw all the way back in chapter 1. The God of comfort. And how does God comfort his people? He doesn't comfort his people just merely by his word, but he comforts his people by our words one to another. That's why what we talk about and what we do as a church really matters. Because God uses his people to speak life and hope into each other's lives. And so if we're not doing it, who's going to do it? If we're not speaking grace and mercy into each other's lives, where are you going to get it? You're not going to get it from, from out in the world. This, is, this has got to be the place where we are loving one another enough to say, Hey man, I love you and I accept you and you know what? I know that you probably didn't mean this, but this is how it came across to me. But that Spirit of God dwells in our midst to make us more like Jesus. And how does he do that? It's through the way that we talk to one another, the way we draw near to each other, the way we pursue each other. Because if we're not doing that, then we're just leaving each other on islands. And, and here we see that when someone slights you, that ought to be the trigger to draw near to that person. Again, this isn't about pursuing conflict. This isn't about looking for the next thing. If, if, that, if that's what you're hearing, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not the kind of church that we want either. I mean, we don't want a bunch of Pharisees. We want people who are welcoming each other into our lives. That we are saying, I want to draw near to you, and you know what? Let's have dinner. Let's have coffee. Let's go out and, and spend time together. And I'm going to welcome you into my life. And then the gospel allows us to shed the pretense to say, I don't have to have it together because you don't. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because you and I need someone outside of ourselves to save us. And then we can say, hey, you know what? I don't have to perform for this person anymore. I don't have to be something that I'm not. And you know what? The more that you are yourself, the more that you can let your dirty laundry fly the more it can get cleansed and cleaned by each other. And that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of and I know that you want to be a part of too. And why do, we, why do we do this? Because God is the one who completes the work. Verse 16, I have confidence. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. 
But again, that confidence doesn't stem from the Corinthians. It stems all the way back to verse 1. Since we have these promises, we can have confidence. We can have confidence because the Spirit of God dwells within us. He's going to bring into completion the thing that He started. That's where we get our confidence. That's where we, we get our desire and our ability to draw near to each other. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words. These words of of grief, but these words of comfort that free us to be sinners. That free us up to be people who don't have to perform. Who don't have the pretense of trying to polish our outsides while our insides are suffering and hurting. Lord, help us to be a people who are transparent with each other who love each other, who draw near to each other through the conversations that we have, and that in those conversations we would relish and delight in the fact that we are saved by the only perfect one, King Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.